Creating your own reality. Is it possible for me? I am Jennifer Cahill, the Consciousness Architect, and I am here to tell you that it's not only possible, it's closer than you might think. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of Conversations at the Intersection of Cutting-Edge Science and Spirituality. I am Jennifer Cahill, and it is my privilege and honor to get to moderate these two brilliant gentlemen, Dr. Deepak Chopra and Don Hoffman. Don Hoffman received his PhD from MIT and is a professor emeritus of cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine, as well as being a best-selling author of the book, The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. And of course, we have Deepak Chopra, who has authored over 90 books, including numerous New York Times bestsellers. Many of these books have been translated into 43 different languages around the world. He is a pioneer at the intersection of integrative medicine and personal transformation. And I'm so grateful that we get to bring you yet another one of these conversations. So in inspiration for today's talk, I was speaking with Deepak and Don before the show. And Don shared with me that in all these brilliant interviews that he's doing around his book, The Case Against Reality, and his actual mathematical formula for consciousness, which was one of the last episodes that we did, he gets asked the same recurring questions over and over. If this is all consciousness and one consciousness observing itself through these different avatars and VR headsets, what about procreation? What about mental health? So I'm going to draw from some of the questions that Don has been asked over the last several years since his book got published, and then we're going to give the opportunity for Don and Deepak to comment on it so that we can integrate the science and spirituality of consciousness being fundamental. So let's begin today with something that's very near and dear to all of our hearts, which is the idea of mental illness. Don, in one of the questions that you sent me, the person asks, how does mental illness or developmental disabilities play into virtual reality? I was thinking it might be considered like a bug in our avatar, but those things affect our brain, which is outside of space-time. And then medicine drugs we take within space-time, which isn't real and affects our brains, out, which is outside of space-time. How can something that is only in VR help our brain that is outside of VR and what causes mental illness and developmental disabilities? Don, do you want to start with this? Oh, okay. There are a couple of levels at which one could try to address such a question. One is at a sort of a deep spiritual level, which is to say, why, from a spiritual point of view, does the one consciousness create space-time, for example, and create its own avatars inside space-time and then have them do all the, the amazing different things that we do. And not just human avatars, but ants and spiders and baboons. And there's billions and billions of different avatars that, that we are aware of. So why would the one consciousness choose to, to do that? And then in the, in the context of that, why is there problems with mental health in, in that context? And of course, the right answer is I don't know. So what I'm about to say is a speculation. But it, it some spiritual teachers have pointed out, like Eckhart Tolle has pointed out, if everything were green, then green wouldn't exist. 
Mm. Right? You need contrasts to actually have something stand out and be. So perhaps if the one is itself the un, unbounded and unformed, to know itself, it needs a contrast. And so what it does is it plunges itself into infinitely many different forms. It, it projects itself into all these different forms and lets itself get lost in the forms and then wakes up. And in the process of waking up, it finds out through experience, oh, I am not just that Hoffman avatar. I'm not an ant avatar. I am something far greater than that. But the Hoffman avatar is one little perspective on me. And the ant avatar has one another little perspective on me. So there's all these different perspectives. And so the reason for plunging itself into all these different countless avatars is that's the only way to really know itself. And that now in that case, what mental health might turn out to be is <clears throat> if under that scenario, the goal is not what do I accomplish here on earth? Like how many, how many cars do I get? And how <laughs> famous am I? The, the, all that stuff is irrelevant. The only thing that's really relevant is waking up to who I am. I'm not this avatar. So to help itself, it has various, it, it makes it painful. So pain and suffering is part of the whole VR headset to prod the one to wake up. So it first starts out identified with the avatar because that's, you gotta, if you're gonna do this, you have to go in with both feet. So you go in with both feet, you really identify yourself with the form, and then you use slowly and painfully wake up. And so mental illness, the suffering and so forth associated with mental illness is part of the prompt to wake up to who you really are. So that's, so I should probably, I've already said quite a bit, so I should stop and, and let Deepak, a, a true spiritual teacher, say something more more deep. <laughs> Deepak, I just want to highlight, I know neveralone.love is uh, one of your passion projects that is aiming to support people with mental health related matters around the world. So I would welcome your feedback in the context of it being such a big passion of yours. Well, yes. Now, to elaborate on that, we just, in the last two weeks, launched two online certification courses. One is called The Soul of Leadership, which I've been teaching at Kellogg and Columbia Business Schools for many years. But it is about spiritual leadership, soul of leadership. And we are partnering with many organizations now to give it out there for free. Soul of Leadership is online for free if you go to Chopra Foundation Institute, which is CF cfi.choprafoundation.org. The other course we launched, which is a little bit, has a little bit of a cost, $9.99. We are um, certifying people to be peace facilitators <clears throat> in their communities. So begin with their communities, begin with their families. And that's a certification course based on a book that I wrote many years ago called Peace is the Way. And in the three days that we've launched it, we have almost 500 people registered for each course. So best thing you can do, actually, anyone who's listening, including you, Jennifer, you can take certify yourself in these two courses and spread the message because we need a critical mass of people who want to be the change they want to see in the world. Now, coming to the question that you asked and Don answered very elegantly, if the infinite is infinite, then it has infinite 
manifestations, divine and diabolical. There's no, there's no judgment here. The infinite cannot be compromised by its manifestations and, and all experiences by contrast. You don't know what pleasure is if you don't know what pain is. You don't know what up is if you don't know what down is. You don't know what time is unless you know what timelessness is. On and on. Hot, you don't know hot from cold. So in order to experience anything, you have to need, you need contrast. Now, what is the purpose of this? Again, like Don, I'll say I don't know, but, but I think it, the avatar in a way doesn't wake up. The avatar loses its identity. Waking up is, or liberation is not of the person, but from the person. I'll repeat that. Liberation is not of the person, but from the person. Because what we call our persona, our personal self, with its body and mind, it's not a noun, it's a verb, it's a process. And it's a process in awareness that knows itself as this process, which is a very temporary process. Lifetime goes by like a flash of lightning in the sky, as the Buddha said. A lifetime goes by like a flash of lightning in the sky. And everything, at, when you reach my stage and look at the past, it's all a dream. It's already gone. Everything that's happened that I experience has already happened. When I look at the Milky Way galaxy, there are many stars that disappeared millions of light years ago, but we're still seeing them. Okay, so when we look at the sky, we see the past. But when I talk to you, we're also experiencing the past. By the time these words reach your consciousness or wherever you process them, they don't exist. By the time you perceive anything, it's over. That's the definition of a dream. It's ungraspable. So Wittgenstein said the same thing. This lifetime of us is trans... No, he said, our life is a dream. We are asleep. Once in a while, we wake up enough to know that we're dreaming. Now, when we come to consciousness, right now, there's a fashion in consciousness because people struggle with consciousness. Is it mind? Is it body? Is it matter only? Is it mind only? And right now, the um, fashion is panpsychism. My problem with panpsychism, it assumes the existence of matter. But matter is a human word for a human perceptual activity. It's how do I know anything exists by modes of knowing and awareness. If I asked you what is this, you'd say a computer. If I asked you this, it's a book. Those are human labels for what? Sound, smell, taste, smell, and form, and color. That's it. It's a combination and alchemy of sensations that I call this object. So if you re replace the word object with experience, then you say, where is the experience happening? Is the experience happening there? Is it happening in my brain? It's happening in my eyes? It's happening in my ears? And the fact is, it's not happening in my eyes. Vision is not... <clears throat> vision, of course, I need my eyes to see the world, but there's no picture of the world in my eyes. There's no picture of the world in the electrical current that goes to the brain, and there's no picture of the world in the brain. So the, where is the experience happening? And the only possible answer is, it's happening in consciousness. Then you say, where is it? Where is this consciousness? Why can't I find it, or see it, or touch it, or taste it, or smell? It's because it's without form. 
And if it's without form, it has no boundaries. And if it has no boundaries, it's infinite. And if it is infinite, it doesn't have a location in space-time, period. So everything that is happening, even this conversation right now, is being processed outside of space-time. That's mind-boggling that this conversation we are having, we think it's happening on a computer or we think it's happening in our brain, but it's being processed in awareness, which is not in space-time. So the whole thing right now is being orchestrated in space-time. And what we call these avatars and these ecosystems and the brains are actually virtual expressions in that domain of awareness, which is fundamental, which is without cause, which is irreducible, which is incomprehensible, which is unimaginable, which is not perceptual, which cannot be uh, gained cognitively other than through mathematics, which is also um, an experience and awareness. The only conclusion is that we are in a virtual reality and waking up means waking up to the source of that virtual reality, which is at all times infinite possibilities, infinite correlation, entangled, determined by the uncertainty principle, on and on. And actually, recently I've started to think about this a little bit. And you look at the basics of quantum mechanics. First one is superposition. Every experience is in superposition with all experiences before you actually have it. It's entangled with... The second principle is uncertainty. Quantum particles are uh, virtual happenings in the quantum vacuum as determined by the uncertainty principle. Before you have a thought, it exists in uncertainty in that entangled word or cloud of probabilities. And so measurement and, and actually having an experience of the same thing. So on and on, we could give you many other parallels, but here's something that we actually because the world is in such suffering right now. I think if you look at the dynamics of this virtual reality, if you are immersed in it, we are part of the scenery, right? We are both the seer and the scenery at the same time. It doesn't matter if it's virtual or not. We suffer because we are immersed in it. Okay, the suffering is also part of the virtual reality. And if you look at the recycling of trauma that has happened since hunter-gatherer times, it's just recycling of trauma. And all trauma begins with mis misperception of who we are, the separate self. That's another thing that naive realism is based on, a subject-object split. Whereas, in fact, reality, subject-object are part of the ecosystem of experience. They're all one. And, but in naive realism, subject and object are different. So if we actually resolve this idea of subject-object split, because once we see ourselves as separate from that which we observe, that for us creates fear. And fear actually results in trauma and violence as anger. And anger leads to hostility, which is very inflammatory. And hostility leads to desire for vengeance, retribution, all of that. And if we have a conscience, then we feel guilty, we may feel shame, and all of the above causes depression. And then it recycles. And now we know that intergenerational trauma can cause epigenetic modulations, 
which cause inflammation. In fact, I just was looking up the data on inflammation and violence. And so it's recycled trauma, inflammation, that is surfacing as chronic disease, as Alzheimer's, as, as autoimmune illnesses, as inflammatory disorders. But if you look at the data also as schizophrenia, bipolar depression, suicidal ideation, less than 5% of disease is genetically determined with fully penetrant genes. The hope is that we'll have gene editing and all these new technologies, messenger RNA, to get rid of that 5%, which is also, by the way, the recycling of the experiences of our ancestors. And 95% is epigenetic, which means epigenetic modulation through precise mechanisms like methylation, deacylation, but it results in inflammation and trauma and the recycling of disease in future generations. One way to tackle this whole thing right now is to address it purely in terms of inflammation, and that comes from the separate mind. Inflammation, genetic and epigenetic damage, and how to solve it is to wake up to the fundamental reality, which is self-regulating, what we call homeostasis. Fundamental reality, whether it's consciousness or whatever. I went these days because we have AI. I went the other day and I said, in AI, I said, is the quantum field conscious? And the answer was nonsense, etc., etc. Then I reframed the question. I said, is the quantum field self-regulating? Now I got a very different answer. It's a, some people think that the con quantum field is self-regulating, it's self-correlating, it's entangled, it's correlating, it's a-causal. And I discovered a new phrase, a-causal, non-local, quantum mechanical interrelatedness. Now, when we go at that to the depths of that mathematical description, you say, actually, you know, whether or not we call it self-aware, it doesn't matter. It's definitely self-regulating. And otherwise, how would we have the emergence of these species? Now, I don't want to go further into this, but I know that actually if we go just on this topic, we'll use the entire R. But I would suggest that we talk about Don's latest paper. And then I have a little addendum to that on that paper, because that would be new conversation. Otherwise, we'd be recycling some of the old conversations. Fair enough, Deepak. And I, I do want to tie in one thing that Don shared. Or I think it was actually Jordan Peterson shared in the interview you did with him, Don, that I thoroughly enjoyed. And going back to the earlier point of why do we have these experiences? Why would there be pain and mental health and so forth crises? And what I really loved that I think it was Jordan shared in your interview, Don, is he said, there is God and God is omniscient, omnipotent, has all seeing all things. What is God's one limit? Being limited. And I just, that so deeply resonated. So then the experience as Jordan described it is each one of us chooses these VR headsets with its own set of limitations to have that very unique human experience. So that way we can all, that way the one consciousness could experience every potential facet and thus limit itself when it's omniscient in all things. I thought that was beautiful. I don't know if you want to add anything before we dive into your paper on that, Don. Well, I agree. I think that was a, a, a beautiful insight. And it's, again, the unlimited and unbounded one consciousness 
choosing to experience limitation in very in all possible different forms, and eventually recognizing that uh, I am not that specific limitation, but I learned to live through that limitation, uh, and and so we are that. Hmm. The infinite cannot be compromised by its finite limitations. That's it. Right. That's right. Just like the wave, the the bottom of the ocean cannot be compromised by a blip of the wave on the surface of the ocean. The awareness of an experience is independent of the experience. Beautiful, Deepak. So onto your paper, Don, you wrote this incredible paper that we talked a little bit about during, well, quite a lot about during one of our last interviews we did a few months back. Would you like to share with us, I know you have had some new breakthroughs and some new support from physicists that I know you've been wanting to share with us. The start of this paper is the discovery by physicists, high energy theoretical physicists, that space-time isn't fundamental. They, they, the way they put it is space-time is doomed. So David Gross and uh, Nimo Arkani Hamed and others have, have been saying this for now for quite a few years. And But they're not just saying space-time is doomed. It's not fundamental. They're actually finding new structures beyond space-time. And, and this has all been the last 10 years that they found these new structures. And one of the deepest structures is something called decorated permutations which is like shuffling. A permutation is like shuffling cards. It's changing orders. And so we had this, we have this Markovian dynamics of conscious agents that we've been working on that's also, from our point of view, beyond space-time. And conscious agents, some conscious agents might have a VR headset of space-time that they use to interact with other conscious agents. So we decided the physicists have found these new structures beyond space-time, like decorated permutations. If we want to map our theory of conscious agents with scientific precision into space-time, we should map our stuff onto decorated permutations first, and then they can take us from decorated permutations all the way into scattering amplitudes inside space-time. So we published a paper in January where we actually found a mapping, a couple of mappings between decorated permutations and Markov chains, which we're using for our theory of consciousness, and also for graphs, so mapping graphs down to decorated permutations. And now we're working to Right now, we're trying to mesh our decorated permutations with the permutations that the physicists are using. So that's our current mathematical project. We're, and we're, we have some very promising leads on how to do that. But in the process of doing this, the notion of observation came up very clearly. A Markovian kernel, which is a, a, a mathematical object, it's a matrix. It has rows and columns of numbers in it. And it des it describes what it does for us is describe if a conscious agent has particular experience, say it's seeing red right now, then what's the probability that next experience will be green or blue or purple or what? So it, it's a matrix of all these probabilities. If I see red right now, what is the probability for my next experience? And so you get a matrix of all these probabilities. That's called a Markovian kernel. So it's pretty easy to understand at top level. And so what we discovered was that, so each one of these matrices, represents an observer, right? Here's observed red, now it's probably observed green and blue and so forth. So it's representing an observer, a sequence of experiences. What we found was if you take any, if you take that Markovian kernel and say, let me just only look at the red, green, and blue experience of it. So it's got maybe 10 colors. This one has 10 colors that it's looking at. But let's look only at three. When you look at the whole dynamics, but only restrict your attention to three, you get a, th a, a kernel of only three colors, right? So what if I'm red, 
now is my experience what's probably green next or then blue next so you just and you get a new markov markovian kernel on that on those three what we showed is two things but this puts a logic on all the markovian kernels what one so this process is called a trace chain i take the bigger kernel i look at just a few of its states i get a new markovian kernel that's called a trace chain on the 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 number it turns out so it's a an order a logic if you say a kernel m is less than a kernel n or kernel m observes kernel n if and only if m um, is a trace chain of n so what what this means is to observe something you're not some outside observer that's dispassionate and objective you are fully embodied and participating in the very system that you're observing so that's what and but what, what's interesting is you get a non-boolean logic so this what we found is that the logic of observation is very much like what you're experiencing in quantum mechanics it's in general non-boolean but it's locally boolean so you can find groups of markovian kernels who where this trace logic is a boolean logic but generally it's it's not a boolean logic it's non-boolean and then we also discovered that this then maps we, we found a similar logic on probabilities so for probabilistic beliefs a logic on probability measures which has exactly the same structure as this logic of observation it's again a non-boolean logic the, the basic idea is that one probability measure is less than another if it could be it's a normal what's called a normalized restriction of the other so if i'm a normalized restriction of some higher probability measure then i uh, i entail that higher probability measure but it would so it's technical but what we found was our logic of observation and the logic of probabilities are homomorphic and then the, the, the killer was that when you have a markovian kernel the there's a some it'll have and if it's satisfies certain conditions you can say long term what's the probability that i'm that you'll see red what's the probability that you'll see green long term that's called the stationary measure and it turns out that the map from the kernels to their stationary measures is actually the homomorphism from the logic of observation to the logic of probability beliefs so what what's coming out of our theory of of conscious agents is a an like a full embodied theory of observation what does it mean to be observation a non-boolean logic is coming out of it that looks very much like quantum kinds of things and then this more homomorphism between the logic of observation and the logic of probabilistic beliefs that comes out of it so we're quite we're in in the process of getting ready for a paper that that describes these breakthroughs so it's fun it's new mathematics but it's also a new precise way of talking about things that spiritual traditions have been talking about for a long time so jennifer as i listened to don and i've been looking at his work and he's been pursuing this line of thought for a long time and this is the latest uh, wrinkle in this thought process and mathematical process and just hearing him right now i'm reminded of what the spiritual traditions in india talk about the emergence of thought and thought of course is linked to perception and cognition and feeling and emotion and imagination and all of that so in the vedantic tradition and the yoga tradition uh, there are four stages of the emergence of thought the first is called para the thought exists unmanifest entangled with infinite thoughts number 1 the second is called pashyanti 
Now the thought emerges as a cloud of probabilities. Mm -hmm. okay. Then the third stage is, so first is para, which is infinite possibilities. Second is cloud of probabilities, pashyante. The third is madhyama, which is your internal dialogue. You find yourself having a conversation with yourself. And you find yourself having choices. Should I have tea or should I have coffee or should I go to a movie or should I have sex or whatever? There's a cloud of probabilities. And finally, you choose one. And that is speech. That's the collapse of the wave function. So I find a lot of similarities in this dynamics of emergence of experience with what I just mentioned. But then when I was looking at... Uh, uh, Don's latest uh, paper, not that I understand the mathematics, but I was still struggling with it. And then somebody sent me a Reuters report on physicists have discovered the, the equation which they call the master quantum equation. So I went and looked it up and uh, I looked at very many sources and I have a summary of these. And I'd want actually both you and uh, Don to comment on it. So, Don, this may tie in with the, what you're saying. And these are bullet points that I put together after going to many sources. Okay. So I'll read the bullet points. Physicists have discovered a new law of evolution that governs the behavior of quantum systems. That's bullet point one. Bullet point two, the law, which is called the quantum master equation, describes how quantum systems change over time. That's bullet point number two. Bullet point number three, the law is based on the idea that quantum systems are constantly interacting with their environment. The next bullet point, these interactions cause the quantum system to lose information about its initial state. That almost looked to me like symmetry breaking. Then the next bullet point is the quantum master equation can be used to predict the behavior of a wide variety of quantum systems, including atoms, molecules, and entire galaxies. Hmm. The discovery of the quantum master equation suggests that cos cosmic evolution may be occurring at a quantum level. This is because the law applies to all quantum systems, regardless of their size or complexity. As a result, it is possible that the same law is governing the evolution of the universe as a whole. However, it is important to note that the quantum master equation does not provide a complete explanation of cosmic evolution. The law only describes how quantum systems change over time. It does not say anything about the underlying causes of these changes. As a result, it is still not clear whether or not cosmic evolution is actually occurring at a quantum level. Overall, the discovery of the quantum master equation is a significant advance in our understanding of quantum mechanics. The law has the potential to revolutionize, revolutionize our understanding of how quantum systems behave and how they evolve over time. When I was looking at this, I said, even this could be expanded. If you go beyond subject-object split, then the, the, the problem of environment and organism disappears because the environment and a biological organism as a unified process in a deeper domain of the quantum field which is self-aware this is what came to me 
but you and your colleague Chetan Prakash, I think, can expand on what I just read and see if it has parallels with your Markovian dynamics. <clears throat> That's a really interesting point. The physicists who are telling us that space-time is doomed, that space-time is not fundamental, these are the, some high-energy theoretical physicists who are, who are saying this. Some of them also point out that means that quantum theory is doomed. It's not fundamental. It's, uh, that quantum theory itself will arise with space-time from something deeper. That makes sense to me because a lot. it turns out that a lot of the weirdness of quantum mechanics, you, superposition, entanglement, no cloning theorem, things like that. Many physicists have pointed out that all of these weirdnesses can be described as just due to lack of knowledge. They're epistemic in nature. And that makes sense if space-time isn't fundamental. If it's just an interface, then an interface has lost a lot of information. And because it's lost a lot of information, you're going to have these properties like the no cloning theorem, superposition and entanglement and so forth. So what? So even if we get a master equation in quantum theory in space-time, which is important, I'm, I'm not downplaying that one bit, that's not the master equation of reality. That's just a master mm -hmm. equation for a description in our headset. But what in the, space time, in space time. That's right, in space time. But let me ask you a question. If there is no subject-object split, if the whole process is one, right. biological organism and biosphere or environment is one process, then automatically you've gone beyond space-time. That, that's right. And we can actually see in our Markovian dynamical theory, which isn't also, by the way, it's not the truth either, but it's a step outside of space-time. In our theory, the Markovian dynamics need not have increasing entropy. So there is entropy in the system, but it doesn't need to increase in the Markovian dynamics. It can be constant at, at every step of the dynamics. So there need be no arrow of time whatsoever in our conscious dynamics, no arrow of time. But it's a theorem that if you take a projection, so you take the, the fundamental dynamics and project it, by, and you lose information in the projection by what they call conditional probability, you'll get a new dynamics, which is a projection of the big dynamics. So I got the smaller dynamics. And because you lost information, the dynamics will have an arrow of time. The projected dynamics will have an arrow of time. The entropy will be increasing. And so that the arrow of time is not an insight into the full dynamics. It's not an error, it's not an insight. It's an artifact. It's entirely an artifact of the projection process. Now, that artifact is the fundamental limited resource in evolution, right? So in evolution, if you don't get food in time, you die. If you don't mate in time, you don't reproduce. If you don't breathe in time, you die. What this suggests is that, you know, I love the theory of evolution by natural selection. It's an incredibly beautiful theory and it's the most, it's in space-time, it's the best theory we have. And evolutionary game theory is quite powerful. But what this suggests is when you go to the new science outside of space-time, all of evolution by natural selection will be, will be viewed as an artifact of the projection process and not a deep insight into the true nature of what's beyond the headset, what's beyond space-time. Does your theory account for what we call negative entropy? Because evolution or life is the opposite of entropy. Yes, and, and it also doesn't make a distinction between living and non-living. So 
which is maybe even deeper in, into what you're trying to say there, which right now, many people, most of my colleagues are, want to understand, they think that there's a principal distinction between what we call living systems and non-living systems, or conscious systems and unconscious systems. And if you're a physicalist, of course, that makes sense. You start off with the idea that the Big Bang it was just unconscious matter, it wasn't living, but now we have life and we have consciousness. So clearly, somehow, certain systems became alive and certain systems became conscious. So we have to figure out which systems are alive and which ones are conscious. But if you realize that space-time is just a headset, and the entities inside that are like just the pixels in the headset, right? That's, that's And even the arrow of time inside of space-time is an artifact of the projection process. It's not a, an insight. Then I like to use the analogy or the metaphor. Right now, we're all talking to each other on Zoom. And so I, I see Jennifer and Deepak, I see pixels of your face, the pixels for Jennifer's face. But then behind her, I see pixels of just a wall or a screen. Now, I'm getting insight into Jennifer's consciousness from smiling and so forth from some of the pixels of her face, but no insight about consciousness from the walls. So I might be tempted to say there are some pixels that are conscious and mm -hmm. other pixels that are not. Of course, that's a rookie mistake. The, the pixels are just pixels. Some pixels give me insight into consciousness. Other pixels do not. So, so space-time is just a VR headset. Some pixels give us insight into consciousness. Others don't. But there is no principal distinction between conscious and unconscious pixels inside space-time. So the distinction that we try to make between living and non-living physical systems is not principled, and also the distinction between conscious and unconscious systems. So many of my colleagues who are studying mathematical models of consciousness are trying to predict which physical systems are conscious and which ones are not. And I'm saying that whole project I'll is wrong-headed. Yeah, it's it's just the wrong, it if you're work. asking the wrong question, then you're asking the wrong that, question. That observer bias, you're going to find things that prove that from an observer standpoint, you can always find something to prove your point. But then that's not taking into account, like you said, Don, moving outside of it, there are no conscious versus unconscious pixels. It's just all consciousness, right? Th that's right. And, and they're even having trouble trying to prove their points within space time. So the question I like to ask them is, so you say that you can show a theory of a mathematically precise scientific theory of consciousness, starting with space-time as the fundamental, like particles in space-time, maybe integrated information theory or orchestrated collapse of quantum states of neuronal microtubules or global workspace. And you're going to explain how the taste of chocolate, the smell of garlic, the feeling of pain in my right big toe, how those are going to emerge. So what I do at various conferences, I ask my friends and colleagues, okay, so what specific conscious experience can you do? What's the integrated information theory that must be, or in, integrated information pattern that must be the taste of chocolate or whatever one you want? Can you give me one? And, and right now they're batting zero and they've been <laughs> at it for decades. They're, so they have no specific conscious experience that they can point to say, our theory has now said this pattern of orchestrated collapse of quantum states of neural microtubules must be the taste of chocolate. It could not be the, the smell of vanilla. We now have one. There's nothing on the table. So these are theories with no specific successes at all on any specific conscious experiences. And so the, the, eventually that's going to tip the scale. They're going to realize these are brilliant. These are my friends and colleagues. They're brilliant. If they could have solved it this way, I think they would already have made great progress. They're going to realize it's not because they're dumb, it's because the, <laughs> the problem that they're solved, they're trying to solve is formulated incorrectly. Space-time is not fundamental. And the physicists 
are telling us that the high energy theoretical physicists are telling us space time is not fundamental and reductionism is doomed. So all these reductionist approaches to consciousness are doomed. And so I can't wait till my colleagues switch gears because then their brilliance will actually pay off. But right now they've, they've chosen a problem that can't be solved. So Don, the final question, because I know we're almost at time today, gentlemen, and hopefully we'll be doing another one of these in the next month or so, I believe, is the question of the human side of it. Right now, for better or for worse, we are conscious agents having a human experience in space-time. And I know a question that comes up a lot, Don, and you and I discussed it actually over the tea we had a couple of months ago, is what's to stop us then from just running amok, raping, pillaging, hurting people, killing people, killing ourselves? Why even live? Why pay our bills if this is all just one big projection into space-time of consciousness experiencing itself as us? I could say something, but of course, then I should defer to, to Deepak, who's far, far more expert on this. But I'll, I'll suggest that the reason that the one is taking on various avatars is to recognize, to wake up, recognize itself in, in these various forms. And in some sense, when I haven't awakened, I view Deepak and Jennifer as separate entities from me that I need to compete with and, and maybe fight or, or whatever. But when I real when I wake up, I realize, oh, Deepak and Jennifer are, are just me talking to myself through different avatars. Mm -hmm. And that is the definition of love. When I recognize you as not separate from me, but as in fact me just under a different avatar, that is love. And so that's what the whole point would be from my point of view. But I, of course, defer. <laughs> Yes. And I, I love that, Deepa. Don, you actually said something about that was one of my favorite quotes from you lately. I think I sent it to you that I and you are, in fact, just one consciousness looking at each other through different avatars. So I love that. And Deepak, would love to hear your two cents on this from a spiritual standpoint. Love is a better word for non-duality, that's all. When you say love, people understand. When you say non-duality, they don't understand. Or when you exactly. Say subject and object are one they don't understand but with this love at least they get a feeling for what that means but taking up on what you asked and what don explained is it feels good to upgrade the illusion um, at the same time there are people who enjoy horror movies and you can't criticize them you can downgrade the illusion or you can upgrade the illusion and it I prefer watching happy movies with happy endings and love stories, but there are people who enjoy the other. And in the infinite scheme, they, I accept all of that. But going back to Don's question, this brings up a very important question, Don and Jennifer. There are two fundamental questions in science. There are two open questions. There are 125 open questions. But the first one is, what's the universe made of, right? If what you're saying is true, then the universe is not made of anything, okay? <laughs> and then the second question is, what's the biological basis of consciousness, which assumes that the universe is made of something, right? So the, both those questions are wrong questions. And as long as we keep asking the wrong questions, we can't hope for answers. The universe is made of nothing, whatever it is, fundamentally, it's nothing perceivable or conceivable, okay, whatever it is. Mathematically, maybe one can conceive it, but it's very bewildering, as some physicists said, and nature is 
reality is not only stranger than we think it is, it's stranger than we can think. I don't know who said that, but that's very accurate. But if whatever it is that creates the universe is not objective matter or what we call the ontological primitive of the universe as force fields, particles and matter and space-time, then the question itself is doomed. And then the second question, what's the biological basis of consciousness is also doomed because biology is an experience in consciousness as well in the form of cognition and perceptual activity. So we are asking the wrong questions. I love that, Deepak. You just hit on something that hit me like a ton of bricks when you said that. Earlier, you were referencing, hey, we can go on AI. And I went on and I asked this. The answers we get are only as good as the prompts we ask. And that's what I just got very clearly from what you shared. We're asking the wrong prompts. You can ask AI anything, but if you ask it the wrong prompt, it's not ever going to be able to provide you with what you're looking for. And I think that's yeah, what Don is pioneering in, is Don is pioneering in asking questions that are outside of the realm of ways that we've ever thought, having new ideas and new ways of thinking. To but, elaborate on what you said, our modes of thinking, our modes of thinking, and even our modes of experience are actually take into account that space-time and matter are fundamental. Even our modes of thinking and formulation of theories assumes the existence of space-time and matter at the theater of space-time and causality. So once we assume that, we can't even write, ask the questions outside of that assumption. Guys, I think this might be a cliffhanger. Any closing thoughts from you, Don, before we wrap today's show? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that what, what's remarkable about science in this particular situation is that it's our own rigorous physical theories of space-time that have told us that space-time is doomed. <laughs> the scientific theories tell us that at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, 10 to the minus 43 seconds, it ceases to have any operational meaning. And that's the glory of science. The mathematical models in science done properly tell you not just the scope of the theory, but also the limits of the theory. They tell you where the theory reaches its limits. And so we know that space-time cannot be fundamental because of our mathematical model of space-time. And that's where I would love to have the rigor of science move into the realm of spirituality, because we know in spirituality, pointers are just pointers. But the, the pointers we have right now in spirituality don't tell you their own limits. I would love to have a new set of pointers in spirituality that actually tell you their own limits precisely. So we'll know when to drop that pointer and look for deeper pointers in the spiritual realm. Thank you, Don. Deepak, as always, it's a pleasure to be here with both of you and to engage in these profound conversations and inquiries into what is consciousness and solving this hard problem of consciousness. I am Jennifer K. Hill, and you've been here with me with the esteemed Don Hoffman and Deepak Chopra. And we look forward to having you tune in for one of our next conversations at the intersection of cutting-edge science and spirituality. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of Regarding Consciousness with Jennifer K. Hill. 
We would love it if you would take a moment and write a review for us or rate us on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And if you'd like to stay in touch and find out about upcoming events with some of the amazing guests we've had on the show, like Deepak Chopra and other world thought leaders, feel free to join my email list at metabizics, M-E-T-A-B-I-Z-I-C-S.com. Again, that's metabizics.com. And you can go ahead and join our email list there. Thanks so much. And we look forward to having you join us next week.